Recovery Elevator, episode 60. My, my worst memory from drinking was the times that I wasn't drinking. The, uh, the, the anxiety and the, the worries that I felt during Sundays and Mondays, for example. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. According to the Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, I have been sober for 19 months today. On today's podcast, we've got Johan. He's 35 years old. He's from Sweden. And when he thought he had a drinking problem and needed to take some time off, he didn't go to his contemporaries or his work colleagues or his friends. He went straight to the CEO of his company, a move that for the majority of us is at the bottom of our list and it shouldn't be. So nice job, Johan. But before we get to the interview, I want to talk to you about an email that I received from a friend. It was about a TED Talk on June 15th, 2015, and it was a YouTube video that currently has 4,619,787 views. It was a TED Talk video that was really good. It was really interesting. I don't agree fully with the point that Johan Hari was trying to make. In fact, I disagree, but that's okay. Overall, he made some good points, but I think he missed the mark tremendously. In fact, after the talk, I put my head in my hands and just shook my head side decide. The title of his talk is, What Really Causes Addiction? But before we get any further, let me just make an analogy. Imagine you go to a seminar on bridge building, and so the guy talks 15 minutes on how to build a bridge, from the ins and outs of how you build the most sturdy, reliable bridge that will last for decades to come. But halfway through the talk, you realize that he hasn't used the word bridge yet. You don't really notice it until you think about it. You're like, wait a second, this is a seminar on bridges and we haven't used the word bridge. And after 15 minutes, after he's done, he'll say, any questions? And your first question, you're going to raise your hand slowly and be like, sir, have you ever, um, no disrespect, have you ever built a bridge personally? That's a question that I would not need to ask Johan. A, he's never built a bridge, but B, he's not an alcoholic. He's not an addict. That fact alone does not discount his views or his points or his personalities. He makes a lot of great points. The point I'm trying to make, it's going to be tough to tell people how to build a bridge if you've never built a bridge. The word that he omits in this presentation is the word disease. And before we start, this is not a debate or a topic. In 1956, addiction, alcoholism, was classified as a disease by the American Medical Association. I don't find it accidental that Johan did not use the word disease. He's trying to make a point. His point was that alcoholism is more environmental, addiction, environmental, than simply a genetic predisposition to the substance, for me, alcohol. So after watching the TED Talk video, I emailed my friend and said, yeah, thanks for sharing. That's really cool. According to this, you should be an alcoholic and not me. This individual had been sexually assaulted in her late teens. She's worked extremely hard overcoming large obstacles in life to get where she's gotten today. The deck was stacked against her. If she was an alcoholic, you'd say, well, she's had a tough life. Me, on the other hand, I'm a white boy from Salt Lake City, Utah, who had an amazing childhood. Thank you, Molly and Perry Churchill. Everything was basically foon-sped to me. If I was cold, I got a jacket. If I was hungry, I got Pringles. Well, Pringles if it was up to me, but you get the point. Needed help financially to go to that private school university in Southern California? No problem, Paul. We'll help you out. Had to pay those loans back later, but you get the point. I have seen therapists and psychologists, and maybe I haven't seen the right one, because I've looked at this approach before, and I've thought long and hard about something that I've missed. But after long hours of intrinsic thought, I can't think of anything. I'm very fortunate to never have been hungry, to not grow up poor. I've never been molested. I've never been beaten. 
the atomic wedgies for my brother, those don't count. I wasn't bullied as a kid. And the list goes on and on. Really, the pains in my life, and there has been no shortage of pains, were derived from alcohol. When I first launched the podcast, about five weeks in, I got an email from a psychologist, and she was asking questions about my environment. And after about five or six dialogues back and forth, I knew that she was asking for the childhood moment or what was causing me to drink. And then I replied with, are you an alcoholic? You seem to have a lot of experience in this field. She replied with no. And I said, thank you very much for your time. Um, I believe 100% that this is a disease. My brother and all my friends, we grew up together drinking. I was the only one that slowly, before I even knew it, found it nearly impossible to stop after I had started. Now back to the TED Talks. Johan talks about a famous rat experiment where they put one rat in a cage with only two water bottles. Nothing else in the cage, just a rat and two water bottles. One of them is water and the other one is laced with drugs. The rat in that environment almost always chooses the water bottle with drugs and eventually kills itself. In the 1970s, a professor Alexander comes up with a new experiment with the rats. He creates a rat park, basically a Disneyland for rats. They got roller coasters, swimming pools, salad bars, Third Eye Blind playing nonstop live, sophomore release album, and they also had the two water bottles. In that environment, studies show that almost all of the rats preferred just the water and not the water laced with drugs. Keyword there, almost all. I actually looked into this experiment more, and it was right around 8 to 10%. Almost all, being 90%, and then about 8 to 10% still preferred the water that was laced with drugs. What do we know about alcohol? About 10 to 12% of the population have a genetic predisposition. This rat experiment, you don't need a rat park to see it in real life. And then he also talks about the real-life experiment of the Vietnam War. How an estimated 20% of American troops were using heroin. We were bracing ourselves for an epidemic when all these troops came back home in the 70s thinking they were all going to be addicted to heroin because these drugs were thought to have chemical hooks, which is kind of the old school way of thinking of addiction, that it was these chemical hooks that caused us to get addicted, saying that anybody who decided to take these drugs would eventually become addicted because of these chemical hooks. Insert the Reagan Just Say No campaign here. Wow, that was effective. Now, if the chemical hooks theory was correct, the Reagan just say no theory might have been effective or the decision 100 years ago to install punitive measures to castigate or only punish alcoholics, drug addicts for their actions instead of work with them. In fact, if you were going to create a system to perpetuate addiction, alcoholism and perpetuate this stigma, you wouldn't need to create it. You would just need to copy and paste the one we've got already in place. Now, during the talk, Johan does deride the notion that it's simply these chemical hooks that get us addicted. And he also mentions if you've ever had surgery and been given narcotics, pain pills, that's a pure form of heroin that you're seeing on the street. My mom, she danced hard. She was a ballerina and she taught dance up until actually till about two years ago. I can think of about 15 surgeries she's had. Two years ago, she was walking and her hamstring just fell off her bone. Yeah, you needed surgery for that one. If these chemical hooks and these powerful drugs called Oxycontin, Vicodin, were enough alone to get us addicted, my mom would have been addicted surgery two, three, or four. In fact, I asked her about why she's not addicted to these pain pills, and her answer was, well, I don't really like the way they make me feel. What? Are you kidding me? Sure, our system is not perfect. Actually, it's far from perfect. And Johan, I commend you on speaking on this topic. 
a topic that many people shy away from. It's like the elephant in the room. However, the environmental component, and I'm not discounting the environmental argument. I know that plays a role in people's lives, but it's not the driving factor. It's the chemical changes in your brain that take place after enough alcohol or these substances have been ingested. I fully believe this is a disease, a disease that is deadly. I remember watching a Marky Mark movie. It was a terror movie where some mist was released in the air and all of a sudden you just tried to kill yourself. You jumped off a high building. You would turn your car, drive it right into a tree. And at that point, maybe eight years ago, I wasn't positive I was an alcoholic on the fence still. I was like, man, what a nightmare to live in a world like that where that existed. Well, fast forward, that was my life. When I drank alcohol, I was killing myself. I kept ingesting the substance where the end result was so clear. It would kill me. Yet, I kept doing it. Worst part about it, it wasn't as quick as just jumping off a building. It was years and years and years of slowly killing yourself. Kicking the shit out of yourself physically, mentally, and spiritually. The disease of addiction? Devastating. Johan, I do agree that environment does play a role in it. I believe it plays a minor role, but it does take a role. Johan also comments on how interventions, they don't work. How we should be singing songs of love to addicts and alcoholics, not against them. Well, Johan, I didn't even need to ask the question. You've never lived with an addict, even though you start the talk by saying it's in your family. You've never been surrounded by an alcoholic that will promise you things that never ever come true. That will tell you, I'm done. I will stop stealing. I will stop doing this negative behavior, which obviously causes me great turmoil in my life, but they'll keep doing them. Johan, I too watched Intervention about eight to 10 years ago and was like, man, what a terrible way to do this. This side of the coin where I'm at right now, I realize what an intervention is. Let's reference back to the Value Bomb podcast, episode 52. An intervention is speeding up the process or Value Bomb number nine. The intervention, it might not work. In fact, it probably won't work. If you knew that you're going up against something that even doctors have no clue what they're dealing against, don't feel bad if you don't win at an intervention. Don't feel bad if you do successfully make your point in an intervention and the person goes to rehab and they relapse two days after rehab. Don't feel bad. You're not battling against an opinion. You're not battling against a preference. You're battling against a fucking disease. And Johan on June 15th, 2015 made a valiant effort to answer the question, what causes addiction? Johan, great try. You had no shot from the start. You're not an alcoholic. You're not an addict. You don't get this. But who am I? Can I answer that question? I know I've said multiple times that I claim I don't have the answers. I still stand behind that 100%. But I do have this answer. What causes addiction? It's a disease. It's a fucking disease. And TED Talks like this that don't even mention the word disease once, even when people who don't need their TED Talk notes scribbled on their hands, Johan, have classified this as a disease, you don't even reference that? That's not helping the stigma. That's not helping alcoholism and disease. Sure, environmental is a problem. I get it. I'm going to buy a new sunflower plant and put it in my kitchen. But that's an easy answer, an answer that, that I thought was answered in 1956. It's a disease. Okay, that's behind me. Before we hear from our interviewee, let's hear from our sponsor, Sober Travel. In the spring of 2014, I went through the most exhausting trip of my life. What should have been an incredible South American backpacking trip turned into a nightmare because I relapsed and then I couldn't get sober. 
Let me tell you, being hungover on a 12-hour bus ride over the Andes is miserable. I knew I needed other sober people to travel with, and that's exactly what's going to happen. Wait for it. RE Sober Travel. Now I can travel to Europe, Asia, Australia, USA, and other amazing places with other sober travelers. I can expand my recovery network without risking my sobriety. For information on upcoming travel itineraries to places like Costa Rica, Mexico, Europe, and more, text sober travel no space to 44222. Again, text sober travel without a space to 44222. And now let's hear from our interviewee, Johan. And I just realized that Johan TED Talks is a different guy than Johan who is going to be interviewed from Sweden on the Recovery Elevator podcast. So keep that in mind. Draw the line right now. Johan, how are you? Good. Thanks, Paul. How are you, my friend? I'm fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. And listeners, Johan is from Sweden. He's a little nervous, number one, just for doing an interview. And number two, he's doing it not in his primary language. So, Johan, first question, let's just keep it simple. How long have you been sure. sober? So, Paul, um, I've been sober for nearly four and a half months today. 90 days in the books, boom, four and a half months, way over 90 days. Nice job. So, Johan, give listeners a little background about yourself, maybe where you're from, you know, where in Sweden, what you do for a living, how old are you, do you have a family, and what do you Swedes like to do for fun that doesn't involve snow? <laughs> sure, bro. Uh, so, I'm 35 years old. I live in Stockholm. I work as a management consultant, and I've been doing that for the last 10 years uh, nearly. I have a lovely girlfriend and an eight-year-old chihuahua. And for fun, well, actually, I, I like to travel as much as possible. So I actually leave Sweden uh, a lot of the times. I love to hang out with, uh, with my friends and uh, go out in Stockholm as well. What's your chihuahua's name? His name is Gustav. Gustav. I love yeah. it. I yeah. love it. Uh, listeners, uh, Johan reached out to me about uh, right after the 90-day mark, and his story yeah. immediately intrigued me because in the paragraph it said, I told my CEO, and right off the bat, I was like, wait a second, you told your CEO? Usually this is the last person we want to talk to about our inner turmoils, our drinking problems, because we immediately think the very – first action they're going to take is be like, well, Johan, I think we're going to move forward without an alcoholic on the staff. But the CEO had a different reaction. Why don't you walk us through that experience? Sure. So uh, mid-November as of last year, I, um, I wanted to, to speak to my, to my very wise CEO about mine not, uh, not feeling that great. Like I was, low on, I was low on energy. I was really confused. Uh, I hadn't pinpointed uh, alcohol as being an issue at all, um, but I thought I'd, I needed some, some time off from work uh, to figure out what to do in life, pretty much. And um, during, during our dinner, my CEO says, well, you know, you can, you can have all the time you want, but um, I don't think it's time you need. I think you need to figure out what makes you feel good and what makes you feel bad in life. So his suggestion was that I go to Las Palmas for, uh, on the Canary Islands for a week of uh, intense therapy to, to really uh, dig down and dig deep uh, into what's causing me to feel bad and what I should do about it. What were the canaries like, just out of curiosity? And I'll follow that up with a quick story. <laughs> uh, the canaries were, uh, I mean, it was mid-November, so, so Sweden was really cold at the time. But the Canary Islands were beautiful, uh, 31, 32 degrees Celsius. 
so really warm and nice and uh the the water temperature was uh, equally beautiful yeah so that was great lots of sun so another thing that's launching at a recovery elevator is sober travel the canary islands for me was a wasted vacation i was bartending at dolce vita in granada spain i met this girl and she's like hey i'm from the canary islands you should come visit sometime i'm like yeah let's go and went down there for like four days and i barely remember any of it so Walk me through that one week in the Canary Islands. You said spiritually and mentally it was intense. And also you went down there not even thinking alcohol was the problem. Just talk Mm. me through that whole thing. What happened? So the whole week or the the setup of the week was uh, two hours of of therapy session in the morning and two hours in the afternoon. And then in between those sessions, there was uh, homework, there was reflection to be made on, on my part. So I guess in total, about 12 hours of, of therapy a day uh, for five and a half days. And I wasn't allowed to be in contact with anyone um, else at that time. So no calling home to my friends and my girlfriend and family, no watching TV, no listening to music, definitely no work or emailing or any any of that. But that whole week was, was for me to be pretty much um, alone with my feelings. Wow. And when did the light bulb go off that the alcohol possibly was the problem? Well, it took me probably 36 hours on the ground in, uh, in Las Palmas to figure that one out. And it was due to, I, I got asked a couple of questions from, from my therapist as a first home assignment. And the questions were, what are the benefits short term and long term with drinking the way you do? And what are um, the short-term and long-term downsides with drinking the way you do? So, so that, that was kind of the first questions that really got me thinking. Okay, so they kind of prompted the questions. And yeah. then did they kind of like lead a horse to water? Or was it you that was like, wow, maybe, maybe alcohol is the problem? Or did they prompt that? No, it was all me, actually. So, yeah. I mean, what, what happened then when you're like, oh, gosh, like it's, it's not, you know, my muscles are tired. I don't have an iron deficiency here. I'm an alcoholic. Like, what did you do then? I guess, first of all, I felt there was a huge feeling of sorrow, I guess, and, and a lot of uh, regret in that. But I also felt relieved in a way because if alcohol was the problem, then I'd be able to, to fix it. Then I had something to, to work on. And there was, there was, there was something to, to, to improve. Johan, you felt sorrow and regret. And I don't know the timeline of how long it took you to feel relief. It sounds like it was somewhat instantaneous. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Because acceptance for me is the answer. And that's one of the value bombs that we discuss in episode 52. A lot of times, they don't get to that relief stage because we are the lucky ones to be chatting on this podcast right now, Johan, believe it or not. Many, they never get to the relief stage where it's like, okay, I am an alcoholic. Now what? And that's the surrender point. So what did you do after that? You're, you had this relief and you're like, okay, now what? What did you do? Well, obviously, I, I took it up with my therapist in, in our next session. And we, we went through my, my alcohol habits and the reason to why I thought I had to drink uh, the way I did, and yeah, and so I guess ever since I've been I've been learning about myself and about my alcoholism every day uh, since then, with a lot of help from my therapist, obviously. 
Okay, you and I have something in common, Johan, and that is accountability is key. For me, I needed to create more accountability, which is one of the many reasons why I created this podcast. Upon returning back to Sweden, you said you told nearly everybody, right? What were their reactions and, and what did that do for you? Yeah, I did. I was so happy uh, about uh, finding what was you know, wrong with me, so to speak. And I was so happy with um, knowing that there was a solution. And part of that solution is accountability, perfectly right. And so I wanted to pretty much tell the whole world that I'm an alcoholic. And so I, I booked a meeting with uh, nearly everyone at work, which is roughly 30 people. Wow. And I told individually them, or, or individually or all together? Uh, individually. Okay. I, I, I think it's important to tell that kind of stuff individually because it's, it's such a private thing and it shouldn't be broadcast to, to, the, to the masses, you know, and... I wanted to take the opportunity to, to deepen the relationship with each and everyone at work as well. And it really, really worked that way. So what were some of the most surprising reactions from the other people that you remember? Congratulations. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Which but, is, but even um, that is surprising, right? Because initially, yeah. when I thought I was going to tell my best friends, congratulations was like the last thing I thought. I thought it was going to be like, well, Paul, we are going to go to a party Friday night. Uh, you're not, you, you can't come. So congratulations, and what else? Yeah, and some people were actually envious in in a, in a sound uh, way because mine uh, figuring out that I'm an alcoholic had to mean that I dug deep enough to really uh, start getting into the core of who I really am, which is something that a lot of people want to but can be um, afraid of. I've never heard of the word envious as a to describe a reaction from another person, but it makes perfect sense. They're looking at you, Johan, you're saying, they're saying, gosh, this guy, he's trying to figure it out. And it sounds like he has, and he's, he's wearing on his sleeve, this secret that he's carried with him for, for a long time, actually a secret. You didn't even know you were carrying. You're right. They've got to be jealous. They're like, man, I wish I could go to the Canary Islands and really figure out who I am. And so talk to me about what happened after that and how's work been? Well, work has been great. I've re-established a very strong connection with uh, all of my colleagues. And one of the main things for me as well, what I realized in the Canary Islands was uh, stress uh, was one of my main triggers for drinking. Mm -hmm. And so I've... I've decreased my hours at work a fair bit. I've I've started focusing on the on the really important th stuff in in my daily work, which is to say that I instead of working nine to eight, I work nine to five. Nine to five instead of nine to eight. You know, Sweden is more progressive than America with these ideas, and I'm envious of your country and some of these work uh, hours that you guys have, but. Uh, nine to eight to nine to five. So you were working a lot and you were talking about how stress is a trigger, right? And how has it been working less? Cause that's something that, that decision doesn't pay dividends like the end of the day. Like how has that added up over time working less hours? Well, I guess working less hours means that uh, my, my stress levels have come down and it's freed up a lot of um, spare time that I didn't use to have. So I can I can spend a lot more time with my friends and girlfriend and our little dog, and I can spend that time going to um, AA meetings, for example, as well. Yeah, you mentioned on February fifteenth. That's a good segue into this question. In an email, you said you were going to start attending AA and NA meetings. Have you done that? And how's that going? Uh, yeah, I do uh, on a regular basis. I uh, 
I attend two to three meetings every week, um, AA, and I love it. Uh, I love uh, meeting new people. I love um, sharing, like the, the the stuff that that's hard in your life. It's uh, it's amazing what what sharing can do to to really help you uh, move on. Definitely. And have you thought about getting a sponsor? Do you already have one? Uh, well, right now my therapist is my sponsor. So, okay. uh, yeah. And is your therapist in recovery then obviously, right? Yes. Okay. That, that is key to find a therapist, psychologist, a counselor that also is in recovery because it's, it's so easy to relate with another alcoholic because it's communal. Have you found that to be the same? Johan? Yes, definitely. And I would say that my underlying priority uh, is uh, staying sober because if I don't stay sober, I'm not going to be able to work on, on my other issues. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And one question that I had a while ago, and I'm curious to hear the answer is, what were your drinking habits like? So if you went down to the Canary Islands, not mm -hmm. realizing that alcohol was the problem, um, were there times in the past where you're like, man, I think I might be drinking too much? And, and what were your drinking habits like? Did you drink every day, three times a week? Did, were you a blackout mm -hmm. drinker? Talk to me about that. So yeah, it's a, it's a funny, funny story, actually. I um when I was 19, I, I, I was in London with a, with a few friends from Sweden. And during that time, we, we worked in pubs and there, there was a lot of um, drinking. And so after six or seven months, I, I just I realized that, okay, so I'm, I, I think I might be drinking too much. And, and uh, so I, 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 um, I decided to stop for a while. And stopping drinking made me feel so good. So I actually stopped drinking for five years. Oh my gosh! Um, but um, yeah, so I stopped drinking for five years, but I didn't admit to myself that I was an alcoholic then. Uh -huh. um, I didn't go to AA or or anything like that. I just I just stopped drinking, and that was that was fine then. So uh -huh. between between the age of twenty and twenty five, I was um, I was sober. That is incredible, and never in that time, like you said, you didn't get honest with yourself, or did you even really? tell yourself you're like look you know i'm not drinking now because i was an alcoholic or what did you tell people when they're like johan let's let's have a drink what's going on i i didn't really have have a story i i told people i didn't drink because i didn't want to and after a while people were fine with that and i didn't really want to dig into my drinking habits uh in london for example because i was i think i was too ashamed mm -hmm. um I'm, I'm starting to realize that now so in, instead of drinking i focused on my studies for example uh, which works wonders for your grades. <laughs> oh, I I bet that's incredible. And <laughs> and tell me more about the thinking component of this disease. So you mentioned that you didn't really realize that alcohol was the problem. That it was kind of the thinking and you know the spiritual component has, you know, has this being sober addressed that component or like working with the therapist has that also addressed the spiritual component? That's a difficult question to answer because I didn't phrase it right. What I'm getting at is the dry drunk phenomenon. Yeah. What you know, for five years, all you did was just not drink. You weren't really addressing the thinking problem of the disease. What do you know about that? So yeah, I guess that that is the the main difference this time around. Because I, I I did start drinking again when I was 25, and that lasted uh, 10 years up until 35. And so this time around, I've a I've realized that I'm an alcoholic and. So if, if I take the alcohol away, I need to I need to have something to replace that. 
uh, and that is the, the, the spiritual component. And that is, uh, for me at least, um, it's love. It's love for myself. And it's... Don't forget Gustav. It, don't, yeah, don't forget Gustav, exactly. Don't and my friends Gustav. and girlfriend. <laughs> uh, and I, I guess it's an outlook on life. Uh, what, what I've come to realize that my, my choice is um, the way I choose to look on life. Do I, do I choose to look on life out of love or out of fear? Wow. Because fear will get anybody sober for a little bit of time, but love and and hope is what's going to, is what's, what's going to procure long durations of sobriety and happy sobriety. And Johan, you and I, we have something in common. That is this time around we're focusing on the whole gamut as before I was sober for two and a half years and I was Hmm. just a dry drunk. I just didn't drink. I was addressing the physical component, but my mind, my spirituality, I was a wreck. My thoughts, Hmm. they were crazy and it became really became miserable to the point where you know, I, I relapsed and, and talk to me about, you know, the progression, of those 10 years of when you did drink, was there yeah. a progression? Did you notice that you were drinking slowly more and more and more? Well, first of all, I guess when, when I did start drinking again at the age of 25, I kind of, I picked up at the exact same spot that I left drinking five years earlier. Isn't that incredible? Yeah, it's, it was amazing. <laughs> So I got I got as drunk I could I could drink as much, which is to say, fifteen beers a night, I, even though I I hadn't drunk for five years. And and um yeah how how was that? Because I remember after drinking you know two and a half years of not drinking, the very first night, I drank everything in the house and I was googling stuff like what else could I drink in the house, household items under the cabinet. Um, there's no ramp up phase, right? No, it was it, it was the exact same spot. And I guess uh, for for the next ten years, I kept you know climbing the the, the alcohol ladder. I guess. Yeah. Uh, I could drink more and more and more. Exactly. Uh, so let me reference the podcast title here for a second. Recovery elevator. Was there ever a moment? Maybe was it right before you went to Canary Islands where your elevator hit its bottom and you were like, "All right, I'm done." Did you have a bottom? Not during my active period. I think. I think uh, I I didn't I didn't experience one situation or one moment that was you know my oh shit I'm I'm way over my head here but it was it was accumulation and it was the habit and it was how I felt when I didn't drink that that made me realize that I had a problem hmm. how we felt when we didn't drink and that is what needs to be taken into account. And Johan, walk me through a typical day in your life in Sweden. So the sun comes up at noon and the sun goes down at five minutes later. What is, I'm just kidding. What does a typical <laughs> day in your life look like in recovery? What do you do after four and a half months and how do you stay sober on a day-by-day basis? So the most important thing for me is how I start my day. And I can choose uh, to start my day uh, with love or uh, without love, I guess, and for me that's meditation. So I meditate for 15 minutes every morning, and that. that um, Real that quickly, can... tell me, tell me what that looks like. How do you do that for 15 minutes? Well, I have uh, two really comfortable cushions that I that I sit on, and I'm not I'm not very flexible, so I don't look like uh, like the the Buddha styles. But I, <laughs> I sit down on on my butt uh, and try to sit comfortably, and I 
focus on my breathing uh, for 15 minutes and I try to think of um, nothing or and if, and if thoughts come I, I let them come and then I let them go Man. and that and that way for me is uh, connecting with myself and uh, allowing me to connect with others that I meet during the day in a loving way yeah okay and then what do you got what do you do after that then I, if I have time, I, I read some, some AA uh, literature uh, in the morning and then, then I have breakfast and then I, I go to work. And uh, three, three nights a week, roughly, I go to AA meetings as well. And oh, yeah, this last week, I've actually started uh, texting uh, friends in the program uh, what I'm grateful for. So it's a, it's a gratitude text message. There we go. I like it. There we go. Yeah, connecting with your recovery network using other means, you know, all hours of the day. That's so awesome. And today, yeah. what are you thankful for? Today, I'm thankful for being sober and being at a really good place in my life and, and uh, knowing that I can choose uh, the way I want to live my life and, and the, the freedom of not being controlled by, by alcohol. I'm thankful for my lovely friends and my girlfriend who have all helped me a lot. And I'm thankful for work and uh, my CEO that, that really helped me uh, when I need them the most. You know, a question about the disease and the stigma. And I wasn't joking earlier when I said, I think Scandinavian countries, Denmark, Norway, Sweden, Finland, you guys are a little more progressive on these ideas such as, such as gay marriage, such as legalization, such as let's ride bicycles everywhere. That's Holland, I know. But what is this stigma towards alcoholism? Because I know in Montana, I've been told personally that coming out as being gay is more difficult than coming out as an alcoholic. What is it like in Sweden being an alcoholic? Uh, there, there, is a, there is a huge stigma, I think, regarding alcoholism because um, not a lot of people talk about it. Which yeah, it's it it makes it hard to bring up because I I think a lot of people still have have the image of uh, of this um, drunk man with a beard lying on a park bench, um, and he's he's the alcoholic, and all the others that don't look like him are not. Kind of how I imagine all Swedes, you know, male Swedes being tall, blonde, and incredibly good looking. Does, does that fit you to a T? <laughs> uh, well, I'm, I'm I'm fairly short, and I'm and I'm ginger. <laughs> You're still probably taller than I am, but uh, <laughs> I, I know I know what you mean. I, I Holland is the tallest country in the world. I was there, and I was like, oh my gosh, I I am a shrimp. This is ridiculous. What do you plan on doing move, moving forward? You walk me through a typical day. Um, what's your plan moving forward in sobriety? My plan moving forward is, first of all, I continue going to AA meetings, getting more involved, going to conferences, meeting, meeting more friends that are in recovery, and just uh, continue following my, my daily routines. And uh, after a while, I want to I wanna start work with a sponsor and do, do, do the steps. I love it. And you just said meet with other alcoholics. Listeners, another reason why I immediately reached out to Johan when he emailed me is because something about Sweden has always drawn me to that country. We've been discussing doing a meetup in Sweden, and if it does happen, it's going to be in the summer months or like August, September, you know, not past October and November. I don't know. There's something about that country that always intrigues me. There were two, I had two bartenders when I owned the bar in Spain um, that live in Sweden, so I'd visit them too. And so we are, 
I am, I don't want to say like hundred percent, you know, create the accountability that I can't get back out of, <laughs> but I really want to do a meetup in, in Sweden. And if listeners, you guys are out there, send us an email to info at recovery If you could come over from London, um, you know, Germany, wherever, I think it'd be a great time. What do you, th- it'd be a fun time, right? Definitely. And I'll be, I'll be glad to help. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. And Johan, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions within 30 to seconds, that'd be great. Are you ready? Yep. Johan, what was your worst memory from drinking? Well, my, my worst memory from drinking was the times that I wasn't drinking. The, uh, the, the anxiety and the, the worries that I felt during Sundays and Mondays, for example. That is probably my favorite answer. I have never heard that. And that resonates with me. It's the times when you're not drinking. The anxiety for me was completely unbearable. Wow. Number two, Johan, we've all heard of the aha moment. Have you ever had an oh shit moment? Like right before you told your CEO, you're like, oh shit, I need time off. So I guess my oh shit moment was in the Canary Islands when I, I realized that I couldn't control my drinking, but my drinking was controlling me. And I was alone in an apartment and I couldn't call anyone. And that was a moment of tremendous sorrow and regret, but also one of hope because I knew that things could only get better from here. Next question, Johan, what's your favorite resource in recovery? This could be a 12-step program, mobile app, AA. What you got? So my favorite resource is my new friends in recovery. And as I said, uh, the text messages of of gratitude every morning, my friends outside the program, my girlfriend, and uh, humor, I think. I love it. Johan, in regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received? So the best advice apart from day, one day at a time, which I really love, is, uh, is to let others, um, other alcoholics, raise your own bottom, to, to be humble enough to, to listen to people and what they've been through so that you don't have to make all their mistakes, I guess. Wow. Let others raise your bottom. All the key points on this journey have to be hit, but they don't have to be hit with such tremendous force. I love it. Last question. What parting piece of guidance can you give listeners who are in recovery or are thinking about getting sober? So I guess for me, it was, it was really important to, to not only imagine all the fun times we have with drinking, but rather play the whole movie, not only the, the trailer. Man, wrote that one down too. I love it. Hey, before we depart, Johan, give us your own personalized you might be an alcoholic if. So you might be an alcoholic if you seriously consider lying about your alcohol consumption to your therapist. Oh, yes. I considered it and did lie many times. Oh, yeah. Quick question. I always ask people from different countries that, you know, they're different languages. Give us three words to describe drunk uh, sloshed, I'm hammered, I'm wasted. What we got? Sure. So number one, Sveen Pakkad. What does that mean? It means uh, packed as a pig. I'm Sveen Pakkad. Love it. Yeah. <laughs> what else we got? Uh, number two would be Osful, so which translates to drunk as a carcass. Osful. Next up, what we got? Uh, I guess my third favorite is Svengd. Svengd. I love it. And uh, Svengd, that probably sounds like it has an A with a couple dots on it. And I know that yeah. because you wrote it. Uh, Svengd, I love it. And let me guess, that means turned? 
Yes, it does, Bo. Yeah, you told me before we started the interview. I love <laughs> it. Uh, Johan, thank you so much for helping me stay sober. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Paul. And before we depart, I want to talk to you about the 12stepbox.com. This is a service and actually would be an amazing gift that you subscribe to that you receive or the person you buy the gift for receive a box every month filled with items pertaining to recovery. At first I was thinking, wow, this would be great if I was just getting sober. And then I saw a review of someone saying, I've been sober for nine years and I just received my box. Great stuff. Boom. Affirmation. That is value bomb number four. This disease will try to tell you you're not an alcoholic, but every month on the same day, you're going to get that 12-step box reminding you that you're still an alcoholic. How cool is that? So Recovery Elevator took the elevator down. You got to take the stairs back up. We can do this.